If you've ever used or heard the line, I'm drawing a line in the sand. I'm not crossing this line. Where does that come from? That comes from Davy Crockett at the Alamo. They all knew they were going to die. They knew there wasn't a chance. Nobody's coming to help them. But are they going to take a stand? And without judgment, Davy Crockett took a stick and he drew a line in the sand. And he said, I'm here. I'm standing here. I'm not leaving. Anybody who wants to join me because this is worth taking a stand, come on this side of the line. And if you want to stay over there, no problem. You can leave. That's where that comes from. And we talk about it all day. It's a line in the sand. Well, what is your line in the stand? Uh, in the sand? Where, where have they gone too far for you? And you'll say, I, I'm not going any further. For me, it's already past that. But let me just ask you a few. Here's your family. Here's your line in the sand. Do any of these qualify as your line in the sand? Back in April 2020, police officers in Illinois, they disrupted a church service that was being held in their own parking lot. The government couldn't have those crazy Christians worshiping their God outside in a parking lot. And they were all in their cars. The decree had to come out. COVID orders trumped everything. Now, how many people in that church that day desperately needed spiritual guidance? How many of them were depending on it to get by? A crucial American ideal, principle, and practice was broken for about a year. Why didn't every church in the country announce solidarity in the face of this? Why didn't every city council join them in that fight? I still wonder about the ramifications of this if re religious people refuse to stand who will. What did this open us up to? Well, six months later, a Canadian pastor was put on his knees and arrested after returning from the United States. His crime, as per the Canadian government, breaking COVID protocols. But what he was really doing was going to American churches and warning how everything he was now seeing happening in the church is just like what he saw in communist government run Poland when he ran away and escaped as a child. Is this part of your line? How far does this go? What happens the next time the government comes knocking on our church doors? Will there be a line? And we say, sorry, read the Constitution. Is that a line for your family? You know, by the way, it's not just COVID. I mean, COVID, did you notice there were no religious exemptions for the COVID vaccine? Yep, sorry. Doesn't matter what your faith tells you. Nope. No religious exemptions. Wow. And have you noticed what medicine is doing right now? What medicine is doing to our children? And if you take a stand that my religion says gender is God assigned, you don't have a right to say that anymore. They can take your kids. Is that a line in your sand? Is it EDU with critical race theory or critical sex education or trans drag shows, mutilation of children, loss of parents' rights. Sexuality education is still being pushed in our school all over the country. And we've shown you the images of the curriculum before, and I'm not, I can't stomach it. Images of naked children, sex acts, it's obscene. If someone was in a park, an adult, and they showed that to your children, they'd be in jail. At least in the America 
I grew up in. I don't know anymore. In schools, it's fine to show these. A-okay. And parents, you don't have a say in it. CRT is also infesting our school, school after school. When parents try to fight back, activists continue to slip it in under the guise of programs like social-emotional learning. They are brainwashing our children. That is true. That is not hyperbole. Is this a line? How about the complete transformation and redesign of social order? Okay, do you remember it takes a village? Oh, that was cute, takes a village. Then they started to say, your kids aren't really yours. And we thought that was nuts. No, they belong to the community. Do you remember that? Now they're saying out loud, end the nuclear family. Oh, and if you're white, they got to get your kids away from you to help your child get all that whiteness out of them. If you're not white, they need your child to convince them that all your hard work in giving them the life that they now lead isn't because of you, because of their status as a victim. Oh, and if you're Hispanic, yeah, your whole language is racist. It's not Latino or Latina. It's Latinx or Latinx. Sounds ridiculous. Why are we buying into it? There is method to the madness here, and I'm going to show you just what that is. Most importantly, I'm going to show you how to undo it. So what else are your uncrossable lines? Maybe it's a rule of law. Crime that's going unpunished. Crime waves sweeping the country, coinciding with the push to stop prosecuting criminals. Opening up prisons. It's gotten so bad in New Orleans that they are now sending civilians to respond to crime scenes. Oh, and they just released, hey, by the way, you know, if uh, you've applied to be a cop before, but, you know, you had a record, don't worry about it. Come on in. They don't have enough cops to keep up with crime, so now they're starting to hire criminals. The border. It's out of control, over 2 million encounters on the southern border, and those are the ones we know of. And why are they coming? Because they know they'll let be let go. They know that the rule of law now means nothing in the United States. And that's a hell of a first impression as they arrive here in the country. I mean, if law means nothing to them when they enter, and they see what's happening on our streets, you think people are going to respect our laws going forward? Does your line in the sand involve the economy at all? Inflation is up all across the board, with an exception of gas, but that's because we've depleted our strategic oil reserve on the eve of what could be World War III. I don't know. I have a problem with that. We know we're in a recession, but they changed the definition of a recession. I think most of us fear that depression could be next. And what do our leaders do? They double down on spending. Yesterday, the United Nations was instructing our central bank, the Federal Reserve, what to do. They demanded that they stop raising interest rates and start printing money again. They doubled down on industry-killing legislation. I told you I wouldn't mention political parties in this show, but I don't have to when it comes to the economy. They all suck at this. They never change. And who's suffering? Them? Or you and the average American. We are living in strange societal destabilization and crisis everywhere. It's real. And collapse is a near future scenario.
How many times in the past decade or so have you heard the words civil war or national divorce? People feel they don't have a choice. There is no compromise anymore because you can't sit down at a table for give and take when both sides aren't willing to give and take. Right now, it's not like the Civil War where it's north and south. It's neighbor against neighbor, even family member against family member. And meanwhile, we're being told you have to get used to this. This is the future. All of this is normal. Yeah. And do you think the inflation we may experience could get as bad as it was in the 1970s when we had stagflation? Some people are saying, oh, you know, there used to be even worse interest rates and all these things. This isn't that bad and so on, um, which I guess is easy to say if you're you know, not in a more difficult spot. But well, do you think that it'll it'll get that bad? Well, I think it's already worse. I think the inflation we had this year is probably worse than any year from the 70s or early 80s. The, the highest the inflation rate got. Because of how quick got, it was. No, no, no. It's just, we're just not measuring it the same. So mm. the highest the inflation rate got in 1981, that was the high for the period of one year, was about 13.5%. And okay. the highest year-over-year -year rate that we got was a little over 9 But you have to realize that we're not measuring prices the same way. So if we took the inflation or the CPI that was used back in the 1970s, and we used that CPI this year and last year, we would have shown annual increases close to 20%, far in excess of the worst of the 1970s. Or you can take it the other way around. If you used our CPI, the one that we have today, and you went back into the 1970s and you recalculated the inflation using the CPI we had today, they wouldn't have had double-digit inflation back mm -hmm. then. The highest it would have got maybe was 7%, you know, which is lower than where we are now. So we have already have higher inflation okay. than we had back then. But okay. it's going to get much, much higher than it is now because the U.S. economy is in far worse shape now than it was, let's say, going into the 1970s. I mean, you go back to 1970, you know, the national debt was, I don't know, half a trillion, 500 billion or so. I mean, it got to a trillion uh, in the early 80s. You know, 1980, 81, it got to a trillion, but it was maybe 500 billion or less, probably less than that. Uh, so we had a small, a tiny debt compared to the almost 32 trillion we have today. But also in 1970, even through 1980, the United States was the world's richest creditor nation, right? So the world owed us a lot of money. Today, we're the world's biggest debtor nation. In fact, mm -hmm. America owes more money than all the other debtor nations of the world combined. In the 1970s and even into the 80s, we had trade surpluses. Every year, we sold more than we bought. So we were earning surpluses. Today, we have record trade deficits. Um, so America is a different country. Back in the mm -hmm. 70s, 80s, American families had a lot more savings to fall back on. Uh, you didn't have, um, you know, all the consumer debt that exists today. And of course, during the 1970s, most women didn't even have a job. You know, so you had a guy who was married, 
even if he didn't have a college degree, even if he dropped out of high school, the job he had was enough to support his wife and and his kids. Uh, yeah. So there was still a, a, a spare laborer, right? So if times got tough, you know, the woman could, you know, get a job, help out, right? And, mm. and, and that's kind of what happened during the 70s and 80s. A lot of women, uh, you know, by necessity, you know, moved into the labor force to help the, the household, you know, make ends meet. But mm. today, you know, most uh, married couples, you already have both spouses working. So there is no spare unless yeah. the kids are going to drop out of school and start working, <laughs> you know, but there's, yeah. you know, we don't have that. So we're, we're in much worse shape economically, mm-hmm. financially. We're the mirror image of what we used to be. You know, we're a nation well in economic decline, industrial decline. And, and, and so, and when interest rates go up, and I think interest rates ultimately have to go higher than they did in the 1980s mm-hmm. if we really want to restore balance and, and bring down inflation, but we can't afford it. America was so rich in 1980, we could afford to pay 20% interest rates. We can't even come close to affording that now. We're way too broke. Right. And it seems like, too, back then, you know, we used to have a lot more manufacturing jobs. You mentioned that we weren't just consuming things. We were making things. Um, But I want to ask you about recession, because a lot of people are saying we're in a recession now. Other people are saying the the, the recession's going to get much worse. We're we're barely in the recession. So how bad do you think it's going to be? And how do you compare that to the recession of 2008? Yeah, I think we are in recession. Uh, you know, we had two negative quarters of GDP earlier in the year, uh, and so that technically met the definition. But you know, I mm-hmm. think the the numbers would be a lot worse if they were honest. Because again, just like we overstate, or rather, just like we understate inflation, the GDP overstates economic growth. I mean, all of these indexes that measure things were created by the government to make the government look good. Mm-hmm. It's like if if we allowed our children to grade their own report cards, <laughs> you know, we wouldn't be surprised if they came home with straight A's. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, I don't really put much stock in government statistics that are reporting on the success of the economy when the government has a vested interest in pretending that the economy is stronger than it is. So they always want to understate unemployment over, you know, understate inflation, overstate economic growth. So I think we're in recession. I think the recession is going to get worse next year because we've been in recession, even though technically uh, the official unemployment rate has been low. Now, of course, the unofficial unemployment rate is much higher. Uh, But I think a lot of jobs are going to be lost as the recession, you know, continues to unfold. And I think by the time this recession is over, whenever that is, because it may be years from now, because I think it's going to be longer and deeper than the Great Recession of, you know, 07, 08. I think by the time it's done and they go back and they, you know, they, they write uh, the history of this time period, I don't think they're going to call it a recession. I think it's going to be more of a depression. Uh, and although it's since inflation is going to be so high, I think they'll refer to it as an inflationary depression, mm-hmm. which I think will be worse than the depression of the 1930s, where at least you had the benefit of falling prices. This wow. time, uh, people are going to have to suffer the added burden of rapidly rising prices. OK, so you think it could be like a Great Depression, except we won't be paying a little. You're saying we're paying a lot. But yes. 
it will and, and feel it will feel painful. It will feel because you're you're saying the price it may be high because you know like people say oh this used to be twenty five cents this used to be cheap and people made less yeah. but basically well, you're you're saying the price is here but you're living paycheck to paycheck and yeah well during the, let's painful. say during during the Great Depression not everybody lost their job. Maybe at the worst of the Great Depression, it was 20, 25 percent unemployment. But of course, they counted it, you know, more accurately. I mean, anybody who didn't have a job was considered unemployed back in the 1930s. Today, most of the people who don't have jobs don't even show up in the unemployment statistics. We don't count them. But most people did not lose their jobs during the Great Depression. But prices were down about 30 percent. So if you had your job, and your cost of living went way down, I mean, you really had a dramatic increase in your real wages. So for some people, it wasn't that bad. Uh, maybe they lost some money in the stock market, but you know they made up for it because their paychecks went a lot further at the supermarket because uh, prices were going down. Uh, but that's not going to be the case this time. You're not gonna get the relief. So even if you don't lose your job, you're gonna lose a good portion of your paycheck because of, of inflation. And the reason the Great Depression was so great was because of government intervention trying to stimulate the economy, first with Hoover and then even more so with Roosevelt. Well, we're going to make the same mistakes again. In fact, we're going to make even bigger mistakes. So that's why I'm convinced that we'll turn this economic downturn into a depression. You know, if the politicians had the good sense to do nothing and allow the free market to function, uh, then we would, you know, correct the problems much quicker. But of course, had the government allowed the free market to function, we never would have created the problem in the first place. Right. This was pre-planned. Uh, this whole propaganda censorship uh, really I don't know how else to say it, information warfare, psychological operation strategy that we've all been subjected to for the last three years. And Jill, at the, you know, in the frame of when this happened, was able to grab these stories that had been uh, posted in these various organs that we now call corporate media or state-controlled media, like the Washington Post and um, the New York Times, that clearly demonstrated that uh, this was highly coordinated and what we had just experienced was at the absolute front end, the tip of the spear, or as they like to say, the bleeding edge of, uh, of the events and the strategy that would then be deployed against the entire world in a harmonized fashion. We have all been subjected over the last three years to military grade psychological operations that were using technology developed for offshore conflicts. Um, and they have been deployed against the citizens of virtually the entire Western world. And uh, as Epoch Times is exquisitely sensitive to, these are the technologies and strategies that are central to the ability of the Chinese Communist Party to maintain control in, in its information battle space. And we've now had this deployed against us. We're now seeing the documentation um, on a daily basis released to us by Twitter of uh, this intense collusion between the US government, tech, and uh, corporate media. 
but uh, for sure the first kind of radicalization event for Jill and I in our um, stepwise progression of becoming increasingly disenchanted with the government and what was being done to the citizens and, and increasingly attuned to the fact that they are breaching um, uh, guardrail after guardrail uh, in terms of ethics uh, and the norms of uh, drug development, bioethics, biodefense, pharmaceutical development, uh, all of that has been disregarded in a rush to advance a technology platform that just serendipitously happens to be the one that I played this key role in back in 1989, but has now been perceived uh, as supporting multiple agendas, uh, including um, convincing a skeptical population that historically has been very wary of uh, genetically modified organisms to allow themselves to become genetically modified organisms. I mean, in a way, you have to admire uh, the technical prowess that has been on display in a global way uh, in uh, this deployment. Is it 10 billion or 13 billion in the United States alone that was employed in this, uh, what else can you call it, PSYOPs campaign to get people to accept um, uh, products which are neither safe nor effective and uh, which have not met traditional standards, are not licensed, fully licensed. They're available under this special clause of emergency use authorization. And yet um, the government felt uh, that it was acceptable uh, to deploy uh, these military-grade technologies against all of us to coerce, compel, and mandate that we accept an unlicensed product that turns out to not be safe nor effective. You can sort of imagine something like this happening, you know, on a national scale. But it's very hard to imagine, I think, for a lot of people, something like this happening on this global scale. Everybody speaking with, with the same talking points, the same vision. And um, oblivious, and this is the, this is the hard, the really difficult part, to the, to the many, many questions uh, around whether it's the lockdown policy early on or the, the genetic vaccines and you know, the harms associated with them. And it can be hard to fathom. Can I respond to that? Because I want to loop back to something you said earlier in your history, your personal story, having to do with your difficulty in coming to grips with the, how else do we call it, fundamental evil of organ harvesting in the CCP and the meaning of that. Um, I think as I've tried to wrestle with this and with people's um, reflexive revulsion and unwillingness to even allow these discordant thoughts uh, to come into their mind, the possibility that these things might be happening in this way, whether it's organ harvesting or it's the darkness of uh, what appears to be the emergence of a, a pharmaceutical corporatist uh, global centralized state. Uh, um, 
I think it is a testimony to people's intrinsic goodness. It demonstrates that most people really believe in these fundamental ethics that we could call Judeo-Christian, or there's a number of other words that we could use around this, but the belief system that there actually is right and wrong, that there are ways that civilized people should behave. And to confront the possibility of something so evil where people are willing, government officials, or some, who is the puppet master? I have no idea. Or is this just a swarm emergent phenomena? I just can't, I can't, I, I don't have enough data to disambiguate that. But I do know that, that the, this reflexive reaction of people like yourself, um, in which you, it's hard for you to even grapple with the possibility of such darkness as a globally coordinated propaganda campaign harmonized that involved, just as one example, as I just learned from my trip to Austria that I just came back with, from yesterday, that involved um, massive amounts of capital being deployed to essentially buy off artist influencers across the world in a harmonized, simultaneous fashion. That, you know, my friends in Vienna, when I was there, were complaining all of the musicians and the artists uh, and influencers in the arts in Vienna, one of the world's capitals of the arts, were functionally all bought off. They all received money at the outset in order to compel them, coerce them, whatever language we want to use, to endorse en these encourage products. Encourage them. Encourage them. Encourage whatever, whatever you, the, mm -hmm. the, the language. Mm -hmm. and, and this is another point I want to make. Language really matters, as Orwell so clearly pointed out in his writing. And we have, not only have we been subjected to this barrage of coordinated propaganda, we've been subjected to a barrage of intentional manipulation of our very language to support this initiative and this agenda. Uh, how do we recover from this? How do we recover our innocence? How do we move to a world in which we can trust one another? In an environment in which every single person needs to second think whether or not this person or that person is controlled opposition where there's always that doubt placed into your mind, where you have to approach every transaction with a modicum of suspicion. How can we form community? How can we form trust? Because in my experience, with you know, decades with clients, um, uh, you have to give trust in order to get trust. People will not trust you if you don't trust them. It's a reciprocal relationship, it's very subtle in human interactions. And if we're now forced into this environment by these chaos agents, let's call them, these, these entities that are exploiting um, this psychological information warfare battlefield towards whatever their objectives are, and I don't think either of us really know what the end point is.
Despite Hollywood's insistence on wanting to end all bigotry and promote tolerance for everything, there is a growing anti-white sentiment where white people are regularly demonized, ostracized, and blamed for all the problems in the world. At the same time, Hollywood is doing everything that they can to portray blacks and Latinos as perpetual victims of whiteness, whose lives have been ruined for generations because of white privilege. According to Hollywood, black people never do anything wrong or or if they do, it's the result of the circumstances of their life, which put them in that position because of systemic and institutional racism at the hands of white people. John Langley, the creator of the reality show Cops, admitted he purposefully didn't allow many segments involving police confrontations with black suspects and instead aired more white people being detained and arrested because he didn't want to promote any stereotypes about black people and crime. Never mind the Department of Justice statistics, which show that certain people make up approximately 13% of the population in the United States, but are responsible for close to 50% of the total murders. Just pointing out statistics like that is considered to be racist. Of course, diversity is a code word, meaning less white people, and in recent years, Hollywood has been obsessed with what liberals believe are too many white people starring in films and TV shows. In 2015, after the Academy Award nominees were announced, the hashtag OscarsSoWhite went viral from people complaining that there weren't any black people nominated for Best Actor or Best Actress that year. In their minds, black people are the best, and it must have been because of racism that none happened to be nominated for those spots that year. Instead of mocking them, the media and celebrities took their delusion seriously, and from that point on, their foot was in the door, and each year after that, there would be more scrutiny over how many people of color were nominated, and which actors won, and how many white people starred in TV shows and films. Every time nominees were mentioned, media reports would flood the internet about the lack of diversity and how problematic it was. Why do snubs for women and people of color keep happening, they would ask every time half the nominees weren't black or Latino. Fans of Jennifer Lopez were so upset that she wasn't nominated for Best Actress for her role as a stripper in a film called Hustlers that they took to Twitter, as usual, to complain about it, demanding justice for J-Lo. In the film, she plays one of a group of strippers who drug and then defraud rich men who come into their club running up their credit cards. Not exactly Oscar material, but she must have gotten snubbed because she's Latino. Others were equally upset that Jamie Foxx, Lupita Nyong'o, Aquafina, and Eddie Murphy weren't nominated for anything either one year, all because of racism. Not that they had mediocre performances or others who happened to be white made more of an impact. Director Tim Burton, the man behind Edward Scissorhands, Beetlejuice, and The Nightmare Before Christmas, angered the diversity police because he didn't cast a diverse group of characters in his movie Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children since Samuel L. Jackson was the only black person in the movie. He trended on Twitter from so many woke people calling him a racist. Actor Jonah Hill said that real change in the industry will only come when white men no longer run the studios and streaming companies. Well, celebrities obsessively complain about too many white people being in positions of power in Hollywood and starring in too many shows and winning too many awards, none of them would ever commit the cardinal sin of the entertainment industry by asking about another certain group or their influence. Everyone knows that would kill their career overnight, no matter how earnestly or tactfully it was brought up, but complaining about too many white men having positions
positions of power in the industry, straight white men to be exact, has become a rallying cry for social justice warriors. There are numerous specials on Comedy Central and Netflix which feature black and Latino comedians whose entire act is basically making fun of white people, which is fine and sometimes funny, but we all know the double standard. Few white comedians would dare make jokes about blacks or Latinos. Jokes about Asians used to be acceptable, but those two would be career suicide today. Meanwhile, blacks and Latinos can joke about how much they hate white people or complain about the problem with white people. And often their disdain is obvious and their jokes are just thinly veiled anti-whiteism, but that's fine. Black sitcoms often include subplots about how the families in the United States are living in a hostile country and white people around every corner supposedly hate them. An entire episode of ABC sitcom Blackish was about how America supposedly hates black people with the lead character telling members of her family that repeatedly throughout the entire show. The one kind of movie Hollywood loves to make more than crime thrillers or action adventures or superhero movies are ones that highlight how racist white people are. Historical dramas about how awful white people are and how the films reflect what's still happening today come out every year. Some of them are black revenge fantasies like Django Unchained and actor Jamie Foxx even bragged about killing a bunch of white people in the film when he was a featured guest on Saturday Night Live. Uh, Django Unchained, I play a slave. Uh, how black is that? <laughs> and uh, in the movie I have to wear chains. Um, how whack is that? <laughs> but don't, don't, don't be worried about it because I get out the chains, I get free, I save my wife and I kill all the white people in the movie. How great is that? That film incited tons of angry black people to vent their fantasies about killing white people themselves, flooding Twitter with their hatred. Of course, you can't tell disgruntled people who hate America and American culture, American symbols, our founding fathers to go to another certain continent because that would be racist. Everything is racist to liberals. Black people's obsession with racism of the past can be seen in the obvious double standard of demanding white people not be allowed to say the N-word even while singing along to popular rap songs, which isn't even the N-word because it has an A at the end, or are there two N-words? It's impossible to figure out what these delusional people are thinking. Kendrick Lamar brought a fan on stage to perform one of his songs once, but stopped the show mid-performance because the girl, who was white, wrapped along to the original lyrics, which include the dreaded N-word in the hook. After about 30 seconds, he told the DJ to stop the music and started staring at the girl. Am I not cool enough for you, bro? She asked, thinking that her rapping wasn't good enough. And he then went on to tell her the rules and said that she had to bleep that word out. She apologized and then they started over. Imagine the level of fragility that someone has when they get their feelings hurt by white people saying a word that's peppered throughout 50% of rap songs. When Latino actress Gina Rodriguez sang a few lines from a rap song that included the dreaded little N-word in the lyrics, as most rap songs do, and posted it on her Instagram, black people and social justice warrior whites freaked out so bad she became the top trend on Twitter. She then apologized. The same thing happened when a star of The Bachelorette was singing along to a rap song on Instagram Live because 
Black people get more upset when a white person says the N-word when rapping along to a popular song than they do when gangbangers end up killing an innocent kid in their neighborhood with a stray bullet. Actually, most of them aren't really offended. They just pretend to be so that they can use the instance to leverage more power over white people. Imagine if white people demanded that black people weren't allowed to use certain words. Democrats in Congress would hold hearings and pass a resolution denouncing such outrageous language policing, and it would be a national scandal. But the dreaded N-word, even with an A on the end, mustn't be uttered out loud by white people because it's their word. If you like my monologues like this, then you'll love reading my books because that's where my complete and uncensored research is. I can't say out loud some things here that I wrote because those sound bites would be weapons in the wrong hands and could go viral for the wrong reasons. So you'll have to get my books. So order Hollywood Propaganda, How TV Movies and Music Shape Our Culture, or The True Story of Fake News, How Mainstream Media Manipulates Millions in paperback from Amazon.com, or download the ebook from Kindle, iBooks, Nook, or Google Play. And there's a link to the Amazon listings in the description below. So head on over there and check them out.